Daniel 9, 1-27. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. We have, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, 
while I was speaking in prayer. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many with one week, for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is God's word. Good. So, uh, second session in the morning is always kind of, come on, we can do this. <laughs> Let's turn back to chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, keep finger in chapter 9, because that's really where we're going to be. And uh, if you look down to the... Um, if you look down at uh, the little footnote to do with chapter 2, verse 4 where it says, the text from this point to the end of chapter 7 is in Aramaic. Now, this may seem terribly technical, but stick with it. Uh, the book of Daniel is written two, in two languages. Uh, Hebrew for the first chapter, and for chapters 8 to the end. And the middle bit, chapters 2 to 7, is in Aramaic. The significance of that is this. That Hebrew is the language of God's people, and Aramaic is the language of the Persian period, the common language, the lingua franca. Like English is today, everybody around the world, everybody speaks English. Um, and in exactly the same way, that's what Aramaic was. Now, why is Daniel written in two languages? The best answer I have heard is that chapters 2 to 7 are written, were intended for, the wider world, the whole world, the Persian world, not just for the people of God. And uh, we're going to look a bit more at the content of those tomorrow, but the basic message of those chapters 2 to 7, which are the kind of the stories, the basic message of those is Israel's God is the sovereign Lord, humble yourself before him. That's the message to the world. He is, Yahweh is the Lord. Israel's Lord is the Lord of all. Chapter 1 is sort of introductory. Chapters 8 to 12 are for the insider to interpret things for God's people. That content of the stories in chapters 2 to 7 is explained in the weird stuff in chapters 8 to 12. The kind of this is what's going on behind all that you see. One, one way to make this simple, to kind of explain what I'm really talking about, is to see that what we've got in Daniel is... Not just a tale of two cities, as we were thinking earlier, but a tale of two realities. In other words, 
the events that are described in chapters 2 to 7, all the kind of famous stories in Daniel, are really describing the what you see is what you get world. Look out of your window and this is what you can see. Read your newspaper and this is what it will tell you about. This is real. This is reality. Everybody can see it. But there's another way of looking at it, and that is the heavenly view on it all that describes other things that are going on behind the scenes, if you like, in the heavenlies. You can't see them. They're non-physical. You can't experience them in the sense of touch and feel them and, and so on, but they are just as real. They're not visible, not physical, but they are just as real. Two realities alongside one another. The what you see is what you get, what you see looking out the window, and the reality of what is going on in the heavenlies that has to be revealed to us. Do you remember that moment when uh, Jesus was completely changed at uh, the story that's called the transfiguration, the changing of Jesus? And do you remember that three of Jesus' disciples are taken up the mountain with Jesus to the place where he's completely changed, and those three disciples are given a glimpse of what Jesus is truly like, a sneak look behind the curtain. They get to see not the Wizard of Oz, some kind of wimpy anticlimax, but the glorious Jesus, what he's really like. You couldn't see it, not normally, all the time you lived alongside him. You couldn't see it unless somebody revealed it to you. And in Mark chapter 9, God did reveal it to those three disciples. It's exactly that same kind of thing. That's going on in Daniel. What you can see and the reality that God must reveal. Both are real. One you can see, one has to be revealed. There's a workman leaving a factory after a day's work and he was pushing a wheelbarrow out of the factory. And inside the wheelbarrow was a small package. On his way out of the factory, the security guard stops him and says, what have you got in your wheelbarrow? And the man says, I've got a small package in my wheelbarrow. Security guard says, yes, I can see that. What's inside the small package inside your wheelbarrow? And the man says, well, you know the sawdust that's on the floor at the end of the working day? You know that it gets swept up and thrown away? Well, I needed some sawdust, so I'm taking some of it home with me. Open the box, said the security guard. So he did. And inside the box is full of sawdust. Off you go, says the security guard. Second day, exactly the same thing happens. Same man, pushing wheelbow, small box inside, same conversation, open the box, it's sawdust again. Third day, the same thing, and the fourth day. On the fifth day, the man is pushing out the wheelbarrow with the small box inside. Same security guard is on duty and says, oh, it's you again. What have you got in your wheelbarrow? Same as the other four days, I've got a small box. I can see that. What's inside your small box? Sawdust. So it is. Do you know, says the security guard, I've got this feeling that you're stealing something. Look, why don't you tell me what it is that you're nicking? And I promise I won't tell anybody. Okay, says the man. I'm stealing wheelbarrows. Now, that's what's going on in Daniel. There's this constant interplay between two realities. What you see, and you can't take your eyes off, the world all around us, what we see and experience and touch and feel, what everybody can see that's very real to us, of course, and also a parallel reality. What we wouldn't know by looking, and you can only see if somebody draws back the curtain. 
We've got to be told about it. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It is very, very real. Daniel is telling us about the wheelbarrow as well as the box of sawdust. Now, we saw uh, this morning, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, are very like that. Jerusalem overtaken by Babylon. God's people defeated by the power of Babylon. What you see is what you get. That's what the newspapers told. Verse 2 reveals... What is going on behind the world you see, namely that God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord did it. Which is real, verse 1 or verse 2? Both are real. Two realities alongside one another. That's what all the dreams are doing in Daniel. Exactly the same. God is revealing to his people what you can't see, what you wouldn't know unless God told you, but is genuine. That's what all the weird stuff is doing in the book, all the monsters and the battles and the winning and the losing. That's God revealing to his people that there is another reality, what they can't see, what we can't see, unless we're told about it. It's very, very real, but we need to have it told to us because you wouldn't know it, wouldn't work it out by just looking. So a simple question then. Who understands history? Answer. The person who knows and can hold together the two realities. What we see here and now, and what God tells us about the things that we can't see. So Simon Sharma is a very clever man. He's a historian, a social observer, a commentator of some note. David Starkey is a very rude man, but a very, very clever historian. But neither of them, non-Christians as they are, understand history. Kind of depressing, isn't it, to give your career and life to a task, being a historian, and not understand the first thing about it. Because they're looking at it, if you like, out of one eye. They're trying to decipher it without knowing the code. They're seeing upside down and inside out. They're only half seeing. They don't see the reality behind what you can see. God's people live in the world of everything that we can see, holding firm to the truth of the things that God has told us. God's people are better historians than Simon Sharma and David Starkey. Now come to Daniel chapter 9, because we've got exactly the same thing in the first two verses here. Two realities alongside one another. Verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent to Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Verse 1 tells us that what you see is what you get world. It tells the story that it's actually at the end of Daniel chapter 5. How one dynasty ended, it was the Babylonian dynasty, they were the big players on the world stage, and another nation became top dog, the Persian, the Medan uh, Empire. That's what verse 1 tells us. The newspapers tell it to you. It happened in 539 BC, there was a real day in real history, it's in the history books, you can go to room 55 in the British Museum and it'll tell you all about it. Verse 2 tells us another reality. This is the reality that is written in the Old Testament that you wouldn't know unless you were told about it. And what we're told about it is that it's all written up on God's wall calendar. 
He said way back in the Old Testament that exile would be the result of covenant disobedience. He said when the exile should happen, he said that Nebuchadnezzar would do it. He said that it was last 70 years. And then he said that the limp lettuce leaf nation, the oppressed nation of Israel, the downtrodden Jews, powerless, dejected in Babylon, would return home. And now those 70 years, that lifespan of a man is nearly over. I want you to imagine a text from somebody that you hardly know. That uh, The text reads, I'm in town next week, I might pop by. We all know what that kind of text means. It means they might pop by, but they probably won't. That's very different from a text from your wife that says, I'll be home by seven tonight. If it gets to seven, and I've had a text like that from Lizzie, I'm waiting. By 7.30, I'm clock watching. By eight, I'm trying to phone, but I can't get through. I keep walking out of the gate and looking down the road as if that will speed her return. Then it's nine o'clock, then it's 10 o'clock, and I'm thinking, I know something must have happened. You're worried. You know your wife. You know what her promise means. Something must have stopped her. That's Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is pacing the floor. He's read the message. He knows his God. He knows what his promise means. Something must be stopping him. Now, that is the backdrop to this chapter, these two realities. What's stopping God's revealed reality being experienced in the here and now, what you see is what you get? world that he lives in. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. So that is why Daniel prays, first of all, covered with shame. You might ask, wasn't it striking as that, those verses from 3 through to, I don't know, verse 11 say, as they were read, how Daniel is praying full of awareness of his sin, covered with shame. You, you might be asking, why would reading Jeremiah, saying the exile's going to last 70 years, and Daniel thinking 70 years is nearly over, why would that lead to him confessing sin? And the reason is, it was sin that took Israel into exile. It was sin that kept Israel there. It was their sin that needed to be confessed. It is absolutely the right response. Lord, we are covered with shame. But will you notice through this, who is covered with shame? That Daniel prays about us. We are covered with shame. This is Daniel who represents one of the good guys in Israel. This is a godly man. This is the man who we were thinking earlier showed purity and integrity in high office. He got a public record of godliness. He was a man of prayer. He was somebody who could legitimately have prayed, oh, you know that Israel, boy, they have sinned. And he doesn't pray about them, those people over there who sinned, but about us. We sin, totally identifying with sinful people as their godly representative. If, if you like, taking on himself the sins of his people, like the Lord Jesus, who himself became sin. Have mercy on us, Daniel prays. Nor does he blame God in this crisis. Isn't that where we would first go? You know, we'd most likely ask, where's God in this? What's stopping him? What's wrong with him? And Daniel asks, what's wrong with me? 
I went through these verses and I counted up 23 times that Daniel says the same thing in those first. Same point, 23 different ways. The problem is my, you're now starting to count it, honestly, believe me. Um, 23 times. The, the problem genuinely is my sin, not God's goodness. The 16th century reformer, John Calvin, said this. This then is our righteousness to confess ourselves guilty in order that God may gratuitously absolve us. Did you get that? Our righteousness is confessing ourselves guilty. What makes us right with God when we admit we're not? Loathing of our sin is a mark of having a new heart. It's the Christian's prayer. Lord, I'm covered with shame. A few years ago, I had a, a phone call from um, a lady who was dying, in, well, from her family, a lady who was dying in hospital. I've been quite closely involved with her husband, who died a few years later, who had died professing faith in Christ. Never quite knew where uh, his wife stood. And anyway, I went to see her. She's lying in a hospital bed, absolutely tiny, about a third of the size of the lady I'd previously seen, emaciated, very, very obviously in the last few days of her life. And she did die just a couple of days later. And as I'm there facing her death, she's there facing her death, I took the opportunity to explain the gospel to her. If she could, if would put her trust in the death of the Lord Jesus for her, she could be forgiven of all her sin. And she interrupted me and said, why do I need forgiveness? That's striking. You can be an old lady at the end of your life and think you've got nothing you need to be forgiven for. It's the Christian who prays, forgive us our sins in the Lord's Prayer. It's the Christian who becomes more aware of personal sin. It's one of the things that marks the Christian church. We know we're sinners. We're falling over ourselves to say sorry. Sorry to God, sorry to one another. It's what marks the church. We're saying sorry the whole time because we mess up. It's the only place on earth that confesses sin, the Christian church. Where confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. To you, O Lord, verse 7, belongs righteousness, or in verse 9, literally, belongs mercies and forgivenesses, again and again, in other words. That's what belongs to you, because to us belongs, verse 7, open shame. Uh, do you recognize the diagnosis? Are you like Daniel in this? That you pray about your sin, that you cringe, you're shocked, you're dismayed as you think of it? I mean, do you really loathe it? Do you hate it? Does it bother you? Is it like some sticky mess all over you that covers you, that you can't get off yourself? It's just horrible. We're, we're covered with it, covered with shame because of it. Start your prayers here. <laughs> Especially when you can't make head and a tail of what God is doing in the world. When he, he seems weak in a world of strong men. When, when you can't resolve the reality you see in the world with the reality you read in the Bible. 
then start there. Begin in verse 5. We've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled and turn aside from your commandments. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. And there's 23 ways that this passage will give you the wording to say that. And then secondly, he prays concern for God's reputation. In verses 16 to 19. Now, here's something really interesting. We know when this chapter happens. If you look to verse 1, it gives us an exact timing, which year we're in. This is the same time as Daniel's praying in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the lion's den story. Do you remember the reason Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den? It's because he carries on praying to God rather than praying to the king. It's the same year. So the praying he did then, when a law had been passed preventing praying, his praying then is this praying. That's what he's praying. So will you notice what he doesn't pray about? He doesn't pray about the lions. He doesn't pray about the particular pickle he's in. There's no mention of the roaring cats. Don't you think that's extraordinary? That's what we'd be praying about, isn't it? He's about 80 as he's facing the lion's den. Maybe a bit more than 80. But there's no self-pity. You know, oh, give me a break, Lord, will you? I've been following you for 70 years. There's no whinging about his getting older body, his weakening health, this 80-plus-year-old. So look what he does now ask for. And in these five verses, well, let me read them, verses 16 to 19. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts... Let your anger and your wrath, and 15 times, 15 times he prays about you and your. He talks about God and your righteousness, your anger, your wrath, your holy hill, your people, your servant, your own sake, your sanctuary, your ear, your eyes, your city, your great mercy, your city again, your people, your name. 15 times it's all about God and your stuff. On what basis does he plead with God to have mercy? End of verse 19. Not for our own sake, not because of our righteousness. Well, obviously, I mean, totes ofs. (laughs) But, end of 19, because of your great mercy. But also, look at the middle of verse 17. He's pleading For your own sake. Or look at the second half of verse 19. For your own sake, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel is worried about Israel in exile, but Daniel is worried about his God and what people think of him. For your sake, he repeats. See, look again at verse 19. It's your name, it's your reputation. The reputation that was established at the Exodus, but now being ruined by the exile. Lord, your people have become a byword among the nations. The sins of God's people have turned God into a joke. And I can't stand hearing your name, your reputation, your legacy, the name of somebody I love, the precious name. I can't stand hearing that being bad-mouthed. Would that not stir you to pray? And somebody you love is being bad-mouthed? That 
make you act? Now, let me just tell you that uh, babies are totally horrible, completely horrible. I, I know that if you've got a baby, you think it's lovely. Um, but honestly, babies in general are totally self-centered. I mean, they never think about anybody else, do they? All they think about is just me, me, me. That's all it is with a baby. They're utterly selfish. But babies grow. And we teach children to think about the needs of others. Henry, don't do that. We train them to be thoughtful. Maturity says it's not all about me. And with Christian maturity comes the same concern for others and especially for the honour and glory of God. The mature Christian is concerned with God's reputation. The baby Christian, it's all me, me, me. And if we're concerned for how God comes out of it all, for his reputation, we'll be concerned that what he intends is realised. We'll be concerned for the last bits of the jigsaw to be put in place. We'll be concerned for the end point towards which he's heading, the complete picture to be finished, the moment when everything is resolved, the the moment when we enjoy heavenly rest forever. When we pray concerned for God's reputation, we will pray looking ahead to what is not yet realised, but has been revealed. Christians understand history. God has shown us what the destination point is. And his reputation Committing himself to that end point should be the driving point for our prayers. Hallowed be your name. And so we come to verse 20. Let's pick up the story in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at first, came to me. In swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. The beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I've come to tell it for you, to you for your greatly love. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. What comes next is God's answer. A word from another world given to Daniel in our world, written down here so we can read it, so we can consider the word. Now, stir up your loins, or whatever the expression is. So it's due to your loins? Gird them, that's right, don't stir them. That's it's like a disgusting image, isn't it? Anyway, do whatever you do to your loins that makes your... <laughs> Wake up, everybody. <laughs> Because here we've got the answer that God gives for the distress of the exile. God's reply to the prayer of his people. This is the word of verse 23. That Gabriel's been sent to deliver. To deliver to this man Daniel because he's greatly loved. That Daniel is to consider and that he writes down for us to consider. And the answer is a whole load of weird stuff. But what I want you to do is imagine that this is a bit more like Harry Potter. Harry Potter is really weird. Well, no, it isn't, actually. Once you read it and you kind of enter into it, it's fine. I know it's got all kinds of weird vocabulary. Weird things happen. But once you get into it, it's, it's different. It's not difficult. 
And that's really what we've got here. We're going to look just at this paragraph at the end of chapter 9. Um, there's lots more we could look at, and we'll come back to a bit more of it tomorrow morning. But as we look at these verses 24 to 27, which are Harry Potter-like when you read them, I'm sure you can imagine there are lots of theories about, about it, lots of ideas about the who, the what, the when, the where, who it's all referring to, which makes the whole thing sound like a secret, as if it's all written in secret code, when we know absolutely the point is the very opposite. Look to 22 and 23 again. The whole point of this is to give insight and understanding, to make something very clear to us, not to make us confused. So we've got the vision that is all written out in verses in chapters 11 to 12. And there's this word here that we're going to look at that explains the vision. And that happens again and again through the chapters, a vision and a word to explain it. And the word that we're going to consider. Let's read it again, verse 24. 70 weeks, or if you look down to the footnote, 77s. 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word, this word, to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, or 62 sevens, it should be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 sevens, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one seven. And for half of the seven he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you've now got insight and understanding. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so let's, I want to try and make it really simple. It's about 70 weeks, or if you look at the footnote, 77s, which is made up of seven sevens, then 62 sevens, and then another seven or half a seven. And those periods of time divide up four events that are described in these verses. You've got the word going out in verse 23. That's the thing that Gabriel is delivering now to Daniel. Then in verse 25, you've got uh, an anointed one comes. Then in verse 26, you've got an anointed one cut off. And then in verse 27, you've got the decreed end. So you put that together and it looks like this. Four events divided by these three yellow blocks of time. So here is Daniel hearing this word. And ahead of him lies seven sevens until this anointed one, this prince, comes in verse 25. Then there's a 62 sevens period that's talked about in verse 25. And during that time, the uh, city of Jerusalem is restored and rebuilt. Uh, but it's a troubled time. And then in the final seven, in verse 26, the city and the temple that have been built are destroyed all over again. There's the ending of sacrifices, there's desolations, abominations, flood, war. There's a strong covenant imposed, some kind of coercion or hostile act. 
Now, there are lots of theories about what all these refer to. The simplest one I've heard is this, that the anointed one, the Messiah, is, first of all, Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, who says that some of those who are in exile can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And the other anointed one, or Messiah, is Jesus. Now, whatever those numbers mean, whatever those sevens are, obviously it's talking about a period of time. It may be a relatively short time, one seven or seven sevens. It may be a relatively long time, 62 sevens. But they're all definite times, decided by God and now revealed by God to his prophet. If you like, mapping out history from God's perspective. God revealing to Daniel, letting Daniel glimpse behind the curtain. It's not so that we can calculate exact dates, counting literal weeks or literal years, but so that we know there is a story, there is an author who wrote it, and the story's been divided into chapters. Some of the chapters are a lot longer than others, but the story's been written, the entire plot line worked out. History's limits have been set. There's a chapter entitled The Babylonian Empire. Another chapter, The Roman Empire. Another chapter, The British Empire. Another chapter, Donald Trump, Brexit and the rest. And however long or short they may be, they've each got a lifespan, a beginning, a middle and end. The times have been set. And the point of this, I think, is it's a bit like me setting the alarm as I go to sleep. I set the alarm to work out the moment when my night is going to come to an end. And I'm going to feel angry. (laughs) Uh, God has done the same with the world, apart from the angry bit. The alarm is set. He has worked out the moment when the alarm will go, the world will end, it's time to start a new day. The moment when, look down to verse 24... Transgression will be finished. There will be an end to sin. Iniquity will be atoned for, etc. A moment when, very last phrase of the chapter, right at the end of verse 27, the decreed end is poured out on God's enemy. Long time, short time, predetermined time. That's the point. The important thing is that it ends... There will come a time of everlasting righteousness. Everlasting is the word in verse 24, isn't it? Undefeatable. Foreverness. When all that is troublesome, all the stuff that Daniel was going through, when all of that is ended, when all that is wrong is put right. Look, can I I just say, I've read to the end of this book. Um, Plot spoiler for those who haven't. It's a happy ending. It ends well for God's people. It does end with a happily ever after. And that is the real reality of what God has said, even if that flies in the face of what we experience here and now. Do you get the point? It's simple really, isn't it? Daniel's prayer is for the restoration of Jerusalem. He wants the city and the temple back as it should be. Now, Daniel, here is the word for you to consider. There may be rebuilding. That's what verse 25 says. That's about as far as you can imagine. Daniel, bless you. It's about as good as it could get for you. Actually, you need to know, verse 26, that same rebuilt city and sanctuary is going to be destroyed all over again. Bad luck. 
But God's plans are far, far, far beyond that. Far grander than a return from exile in 70 years. You know, there is another reality that is far more extensive and bright and glorious and foreverness than you could possibly conceive. Daniel, you are focusing on the box of sawdust. And God's got a wheelbarrow of plans. God is looking ahead to the end, capital T, capital E. And it's not just a matter of 70, it's 77s. That's what's needed to complete what God intends. And what God intends is marvellous. There's an internal city. There is Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, a brand new Jerusalem where the people of Jerusalem should live. Not a patched up Jerusalem with a couple of elastoplasts stuck around some city walls. It's a new Jerusalem where you won't need to have any special temple where you need to go to meet God because it's going to be so full of God in all his godness that the whole thing is a temple. He's going to fill it with himself in every corner. The whole of it, the entire city will be where you are that close to God. And in the meantime, for now, God's people, we live here in exile bombarded with all that we see around us. But holding firm to the word that God has revealed to us about his future. We live in the world of what you see is what you get. But holding firm to the word that God has given us to consider, to give us insight and understanding. So that we know history, we understand it, we know where it's going. Until then, we're aliens and strangers here. We can't wait to get home. But we know where home is. Let me just very simply apply this to our praying as I finish. Three quick lessons that match our three points. Here's the first. That we pray covered with shame. How often I pray feeling that God owes me one, as if I've got some right, you know, Look at all I'm doing for you this year. Couldn't you just do me one little favor? For my sake, because of my righteousness. Now, we pray covered with shame. We pray concerned for God's reputation. What do we pray about mostly? My day, my family, my work, my friends, my this, that, and the other. And so we should, we should pray about more, not less. In every circumstance we should pray. We should, we should ask for our daily bread. But shouldn't our prayers be full of God? You and yours languages, not all about me and mine. And we pray thirdly, considering the word of God, driven by what God says and not just by what bloggers say. The newspaper that I get, I get the week, a weekly newspaper. The the strap line for the week, weekly newspaper, is all you need to know about everything that matters. It doesn't tell me that. All you need to know about everything you see, that would do as a strap line for it. That slogan works. Because the newspaper only tells me about this reality, and God has told me more than the newspaper could ever know. God's told me about the reality we can't see. 
We need to, be, to consider that reality, to be driven by what he tells us, or we'll forever be asking for the wrong things. The particular tension for the Christian is this, isn't it? That we know our long-term future, we know our final goal, we know our destiny, we know that all of life will be healed. We know that everything that's mixed-y-muddled will be resolved, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what will happen when we turn over onto the next page of the story. We don't know what we'll experience. We don't know if Babylon will invade. We need a word from another world to have any idea what to pray for. And it is that word that we need to consider and hold on to. Not just what you see is what you get, but what God reveals. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, have mercy. O oh Lord, please. We are covered with sin and with shame. We dare not ask you for anything for our sake. But for your sake, we pray, concerned for you and your glory and your reputation in a world that's kicked you into touch. For your glory, we pray. So may we consider the word that you have given to us and hold fast to it and believe the reality that you have spoken to us about, even in a world where what we see seems in many ways to deny the truth of the reality you revealed. Please, would you help us to be people who walk by faith, not just by sight. Absolute confidence in what you've spoken to us about. So that we may live in this world as people who know our God, know that he rules, and have no fear of anything. For we serve you, and we know the future that you intend pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.